Hello everyone, welcome to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie here, one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing ECG interpretation, another very important skill and something that some students and some practitioners uh, struggle with, but I'm going to be going through a step-by-step -step approach that will hopefully make things a lot easier. First things first, you want to know um, if ECG is from the right patient on the right day at the right time, very important for all investigations. I also want to know if the patient's in pain, that's very important in the emergency department, we'll talk a bit about that later on. But either ask the patient themselves or um, uh, from the, whoever's taken the ECG, has the patient got any pain or has the patient got um, any symptoms of collapse or presyncope? So it's very important. You know, why was this ECG taken? Then I want to know uh, what the heart rate is. So there's uh, a couple of techniques you can use to work out the heart rate. If uh, the heart uh, rhythm is regular, you can count the number of large squares uh, between each uh, R wave, the RR interval, and then divide 300 by that number. That will give you the, um, the heart rate. If the heart rhythm is irregular, I, so the RR um, interval will be variable, you can uh, count the number of complexes on the rhythm strip, number of QRS complexes on the rhythm strip, and then times that by six, and then that will give you the number of beats per minute. A normal adult heart rate is between 60 to 100 beats per minute. Tachycardia is above 100 beats per minute and bradycardia is uh, below 60 beats per minute. Although I've seen some patients, particularly if they're marathon runners and, and fit, that could be, uh, you know, their, their resting heart rate could be less than that. Then I'm going to want to know um, what the heart rhythm is. Is it irregular or is it regular? And if they are irregular, are they regularly irregular or irregularly irregular? So for this, I like to take another piece of paper, mark out a few RR intervals. So I'll just put a dot on the other piece of paper where each R wave is and then move it along and see if that RR interval uh, is constant throughout the rhythm strip. Okay. Um, if it's not, if there's irregularity, it shows you then that there's some form of arrhythmia going on. The most common that you'll see is the irregular irregular um, pattern and that you'll see that in um, atrial fibrillation. Then I want to know what the cardiac axis is. So here we're going to be looking at leads one to three. Now in a normal cardiac axis, uh, lead two has the most positive deflection compared to leads uh, one to three. In right axis deviation, which you might see in uh, right ventricular hypertrophy, lead three will be the most positive with lead one being negative. In left axis deviation, you might see in patients with heart conduction defects, lead one will be the most positive and leads two and three will be negative. Next, we're going to look at uh, P waves. First, just ask yourself a question, are there P waves? So if the P waves are present, you can say there is a sinus rhythm there. If there are P waves, are they followed by every, uh, is each P wave followed by a QRS complex? Do the P waves look normal to you? So check their duration, direction and shape. If there aren't P waves, is there any sign of any atrial activity at all? So you might see a sawtooth baseline, which you'll see in atrial flutter. Next, measure the PR interval, which should be between 120 and 200 milliseconds, or three to five small squares. If there's a prolonged PR interval, that suggests there's an atrioventricular or AV delay or block. In a first degree heart block, that involves a fixed prolonged PR interval. The PR interval is always prolonged and is always the same. And is each P wave will be eventually followed by QRS complex. 
There are two types of second degree heart block called Mobitz type 1 and Mobitz type 2. In Mobitz type 1, otherwise known as Venkiback, the PR interval will get longer and longer until eventually there's a dropped QRS um, complex, i.e. you'll see a P wave without a QRS complex behind it. And then the cycle will begin again with that PR interval getting longer and longer until eventually there's a dropped QRS complex. In Mobitz type 2, the PR interval stays um, the same throughout, but there are dropped QRS complexes, and that's at a fixed ratio of P waves to, to uh, QRS complexes. So you might see 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1. In third degree heart block, there is absolutely no association between P waves and QRS complexes at all. That's obviously the most serious form of heart block. It's important to think about the um, anatomy of where these blocks are happening. Uh, so first degree heart block occurs between the sinoatrial node and the atrioventricular node, so it's within the atrium. Mobitz type 1 occurs in the AV node. Mobitz type 2 occurs after the AV node in the bundle of Hiss or Purkinje fibres. Third degree um, heart block can occur anywhere, uh, anywhere from the AV node down, causing a complete blockage of conduction. You might also see a shortened uh, PR interval. Um, which uh, in the presence of a delta wave, a sloping of the uh, QRS complex will make you think of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Now we're going to look at the QRS complex. Uh, first of all, have a look at its width. Is it narrow, i.e. less than 0.12 seconds or broad, more than 0.12 seconds? And do they look uh, short or tall? Um, left ventricular hypertrophy can be seen on an ECG if you have particularly tall QRS complexes. You can look to see if there are any pathological Q waves which are associated with previous myocardial infarction. So a pathological Q wave is more than 25% the size of the following R wave or is more than 2 millimeters in height and more than 40 millimeters in width. You can then look at the R wave progression. So there's a progression uh, from uh, a small R wave to a large uh, R wave in uh, V6. Uh, that's normal across the chest leads. The transition from the S wave being bigger than the R wave to the R wave being bigger than the S wave should occur in about V3 to V4. If that progression doesn't take place until leads 5 and 6, that's a sign of uh, poor R wave progression. And that can be a sign of previous MI, but can also occur in very large patients because of the lead position. Now we're going to look at the ST segment, uh, bearing in mind uh, to look out for high takeoff, uh, which we'll see if the J point, which is the point at which the S waves joins the ST segment, um, if that point is elevated, that will mean that the following ST segment is also raised. That's known as high takeoff. That's a benign early repolarization and is nothing to do with um, ischemia, but can cause uh, some confusion because it can look a bit like ST elevation. Usually you'll see that in patients under the age of 50. Uh, if they're over 50, ischemia is uh, more common and should be suspected first. The uh, J point uh, will be raised in uh, with widespread ST elevation in multiple territories, making ischemia less likely. Uh, there'll be no reciprocal um, ST depression. The T waves will also be raised, whereas in ischemia the T waves remain the same size and it's only the ST segments that's raised and uh, there are no dynamic changes. So ST elevation um, is significant when it is greater than one millimeter or one small square in two or more contiguous uh, limb leads or more than two millimeters in two or more chest leads. And this is most commonly caused by an acute fall thickness MI. It's an, an emergency 
and these patients need to be referred to the nearest uh, cath lab as soon as possible. ST depression of more than half a millimetre in two or more contiguous leads indicates myocardial ischemia. That's not a STEMI, but it'll be a sign of an end STEMI, and these patients uh, need to be treated um, as per ACS guidelines. You have a look at the T waves. Um, if the T waves are tall, that could be associated with uh, a hyperacute STEMI or hyperkalemia, the so-called tall tented T waves. The T waves can be inverted. Uh, they, they are normally inverted in V1, and inversion in lead 3 is a common uh, variant. Uh, but uh, inverted T waves in the other leads are a non-specific sign of a number of conditions such as ischemia, bundle branch blocks, PE, particularly in the anterior chest leads, LVH, um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or general illness. Ischemia and hypokalemia can cause a biphasic T wave. Uh, in ischemia or electrolyte imbalance, the T wave may become flattened. This is why it's so important, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, to ask, is your patient in any pain? Because then the context of that with some of these ST and T wave uh, changes that you're seeing can become uh, much more apparent. Of course, a lot of these changes can be chronic as well, so it's always very useful to look back on old ECGs. You could also see U waves. This is a uh, half a millimetre deflection after the T wave, best seen in v V2 and V3. Um, this is associated with hypothermia, various electrolyte imbalances, and a few antiarrhythmic drugs such as uh, digoxin or amiodarone. So that's it. That is how you read an ECG. It is that simple. Um, practice, practice, practice is the best bet. I really recommend Life in the Fast Lane. They have some great examples of uh, common ECGs. And as I said, if you follow that, um, that process, uh, your ECG reading should become a lot easier. Thanks for listening. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at, uh, at McDreamy. Remember, um, take orallys on both Facebook and Twitter. Our website is coming very, very soon. Remember that uh, for education and research opportunities in emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter. Thank you very much.